0: City streets, and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations.
1: Almost four years ago, Robert Deer killed three people at a Southern Colorado Planned Parenthood. Even though he's charged with 179 criminal counts, including murder and attempted murder, He has yet to go to trial because every 90 days since May 2016, he has been found incompetent to stand trial and sent back to the state hospital. On today's show, we're going to take a look at what that means as we explore competency in criminal proceedings. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical forensic psychologist and private investigator and your host for Threat of Evidence. I'm very happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Patricia Zapp, who is a forensic and clinical psychologist specializing in criminal forensic psychological evaluation, consultation, and expert testimony. She's a past president of the American Psychology Law Society and has authored over 100 peer reviewed publications, including Evaluation of Competence to Stand Trial, one of the books in Oxford's Best Practices in Forensic Mental Health Assessment series. Welcome to the show, Dr. Zapp.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: How would you define competency to stand trial?
2: Well, every state has its own definition for what it means to be competent to stand trial, but Pretty much every state uses the basis from a case that was decided by the United States Supreme Court in 1960, Dusky versus the United States. And basically what Dusky says is that in order to proceed to trial, every defendant must have the ability to consult with his or her lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding. And then also a rational and factual understanding of the proceedings. So basically, we want people to be able to understand what it is that's happening with the proceedings, understand their place, their role in those proceedings, and the impact that those proceedings would have on them, and be able to work with their attorney to present their defense to the charges. Now, how does
1: this differ from an insanity plea?
2: So it differs from insanity in terms of they're both looking at mental state. So when you're competent or incompetent to stand trial or your competency is being questioned or your insanity or criminal responsibility is being questioned, both looking at the mental state of the defendant. But competency is a present mental state, what the defendant is able to do here and now. And we kind of extrapolate that to the near future of what he or she will be able to do as they proceed through their proceedings or proceed to trial. Insanity or criminal responsibility is actually looking at the defendant's mental state at the time of the crime. So at some point in the past, when the defendant was involved in the allegations or the crime that's being alleged, what was his or her mental state like at that time? And the issue there is whether that person should be held responsible for their behavior because of mental illness or not being in contact with reality.
1: So one of these obviously insanity is assessing a state of mind that was in the past And competency is basically looking at the state of mind currently.
2: Yeah, correct. Who would
1: raise the issue of competency in a criminal proceeding?
2: So in a criminal proceeding, then every state has its own statutes, but all statutes are very clear that really it's any party to the court that can raise the issue. It can be the prosecution, it can be the defense, it could be the judge him or herself. Most often it's raised by the defense, but the onus is put on all parties to the proceedings to raise the issue if it becomes apparent that there's some concern about the defendant's competence to proceed to trial or to proceed to the next phase of the proceedings. And how would that issue kind of reach you? Okay. So generally what happens is a defense attorney will have a client that they're working with. Usually that client will have a history of mental illness. Sometimes there's difficulty, you know, the defense attorney's having difficulty working with that client. The client doesn't seem to be making decisions that are Maybe they're not based in reality. Maybe the client is having difficulty understanding what the defense attorney is telling him or her. Defense attorney becomes concerned about his or her client's competence to stand trial. What happens is many states have statutes that allow for court-appointed evaluators, and they also allow for ex parte or privately retained evaluators. So generally, if it's not a court-appointed evaluation, I don't do court-appointed evaluations anymore. I do private evaluations. So there are usually provisions to retain a psychologist or other mental health professional to conduct an evaluation of a defendant's competency to stand trial. And so usually what will happen is I will be contacted by a defense attorney who's trying to figure out these issues of competency. Maybe they've you know, done a search or looked at the literature and see that I've, you know, worked cases or done research in this area. I've done a lot of writing. So I'll often get called to answer some questions and then maybe to be retained to conduct an evaluation in the case of the particular defendant.
1: So give an example of a case that you've worked on. Like how it came to you when you met with the person, what were some of the things that you were looking for? What were the things that kind of raised the red flag for the attorney or the
2: judge? One of the cases that I've worked on uh, several years ago was a pretty high profile case of an individual, an American citizen, who was being accused of being an enemy combatant for the United States. And uh, there was some concern that this person was a, a dirty bomber, that this person was going to Turn against the United States. And so this person ended up being found to be an enemy combatant by the United States, uh, was locked away in the brig for several years without representation by counsel. And once this person received representation by counsel, the issue of his competency to stand trial became a concern. He had been interrogated and various tactics were used by uh, his interrogators, and so became a apparent that whenever he was talking about the crime in which he was accused of, he had extreme levels of anxiety, wasn't really able to control himself. And you know, the attorney was very concerned about the defendant's ability to understand what was going on, but also assist in his defense. And so I was called to come and conduct an evaluation to look at the issue of the defendant's mental state and, and really to kind of do a thorough evaluation of whether defendant was able to factually understand the proceedings, whether he understood the criminal justice proceedings, the procedures, the people involved, whether he could rationally understand, so whether he could understand his role in the proceedings and how the proceedings would impact him, and whether he was able to assist counsel, to provide information to counsel, to assist with presenting a defense.
1: So how do you prepare for an evaluation?
2: To prepare for an evaluation, the way that I was taught to conduct forensic evaluations and the way that I train others to conduct forensic evaluation, it's not like a general clinical evaluation where you take the evaluees, you know, words at face value and you believe everything they tell you. A forensic evaluation is a very different type of evaluation. And so really there are three components to the evaluation, the interview with the defendant, Background information, collateral information, records, interviews with other people. So, with the goal and intention of trying to assess the credibility of the defendant's perspective and the information that. He or she is telling me, but also to get an understanding of this person's background, the treatment that they may have received in the past, how that treatment was, whether it was effective or not, what this person looks like under significant periods of stress and how they might decompensate in terms of mental state. And then also some testing. So in forensic evaluation, we have several instruments or psychological tests that have been developed that can assist with looking at particular issues. In the area of competence to stand trial, there are several instruments or tests that have been developed that basically help an evaluator move through the process of the evaluation, asking questions of the defendant in order to assess where that defendant falls in terms of his or her abilities uh, with respect to rational understanding, factual understanding, assisting counsel. So in order to prepare, I read as much information as I am given ahead of time so that I go into the evaluation interview prepared with questions that I have. So I will always read the police report. I will always look at all of the discovery information that was sent to me. And then I also request as many records as possible. So oftentimes we'll get mental health records, medical records. If the person's been incarcerated, we'll get records from the jail or prison, maybe some school records. You know, sometimes if it's a high profile case or a capital death penalty case, there's a lot of information that's collected. And I will basically review all of that information before I go and interview the defendant.
1: You know, I have to say, as a forensic psychologist as well, I'm still amazed at how many reports I read that are evaluations that are really carried out almost like a clinical evaluation that kind of take the person at face value. Yes. And that is astounding to me because there are so many obvious interest in presenting yourself a certain way in forensic proceedings. And yet, I don't know if, if you would agree with that, but I, I still am just astounded by that.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I we could talk about, you know, training and these all these other issues, but this is a big issue, a concern, because a forensic evaluation is very different than a clinical evaluation. You shouldn't take anything at face value. Everything the defendant tells you should be corroborated in some way. And so when you see these evaluations that are done where no collateral information is collected, the evaluator is just taking face value, the words of the defendant, you know, that's a problem. And so that's actually very poor forensic Practice and there's some of that out there. And we train people in forensic evaluation to always be looking for corroborating information, to always be thinking about the possibility that the defendant is presenting him or herself in a different light. Most obvious would be that they might be exaggerating their impairments or trying to look impaired or trying to look like they have a mental disorder. The technical term is malingering, which means that somebody's kind of faking mental illness or pretending to be more impaired than they are with respect to how mentally ill they are. And that always has to be evaluated in every forensic evaluation. It always has to be in the evaluator's mind, in the back of the mind. And the evaluator needs to take steps to try and tease apart how this person is presenting, whether they're being straightforward, whether there's consistency between what this person's telling me in interview and what I'm reading in all of the other file and documentation about this person.
1: And also, I'm sure you talk to probably the custody officers, perhaps, who are seeing this person on a regular basis, when I used to work on a crisis unit, I would be amazed oftentimes too is the fact that, you know, that somebody would come in and tell me something and go, no, I evaluated the person and he seemed fine. And yet if you went and talked to the custody officers who are with this person eight, 10, 12 hours a day, I would often get a very different story.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that's key when you have somebody who is inpatient, so they're not out in the community and they are either, you know, in custody or in a psychiatric hospital, state facility, wherever they might be. It's really helpful to talk to the people who are the custodians, the caregivers, the nurses on the ward, the correctional officers. You know, they see these people day in and day out and have the benefit of looking at, you know, sort of long stretches of dynamics between that person on their ward and other individuals. They really get a good sense of that person and whether this person is consistent in their presentation. What I'm seeing in interview is that consistent with how this person is typically. And so those types of collateral informants, we call them, those people that you can interview that are responsible and work with that defendant, you know, day in and day out, those are really key pieces of information for a forensic evaluation. So
1: once you've done all this preparation and you go in and actually interview the defendant,
2: tell me how that works. The first thing that I do is I usually like to introduce, you know, have myself introduced to that defendant. Usually I will have the defense attorney meet with me and then we will go in together to see the defendant. I will have asked the defense attorney about his or her interactions with the defendant. So I'll already have a bit of a heads up as to whether this person is, you know, suspicious or paranoid, might be concerned about my role. And really, I, you know, we just start off the interview quite easy and quite generally by me giving a, a notification, an explanation of who I am, what my role is, what I'm going to do. And really what I'm going to do in terms of an interview is I'm going to ask a whole bunch of questions of the defendant. Some of them, like at the beginning, are going to be real easy and simple and just kind of getting a sense of the background of this person, you know, their family situation, you know how many brothers and sisters they have where where they you know are in terms of employment their you know life history develop a little bit of rapport with the person and get a sense of how they communicate about non-threatening topics just easy things like our background experiences upbringing employment and i want to try and hit on all of the different areas of a person's functioning social functioning employment, education, family. And then really the crux of the evaluation for competency is really focusing in on these issues of whether the person has an understanding of the charges that are being alleged against them, what they've been charged with, their understanding of the criminal justice system, their understanding of the people involved. And I'm really trying to always be paying attention to whether this person is showing signs of mental illness, signs that they are believing things that aren't based in reality, uh, whether they're having difficulty communicating, whether their emotions are, are well in control, or whether they are experiencing wild fluctuations in emotion and don't seem to be able to control their emotions. I'm focused on both the content of the questions and the answers, and I'm also focused on the process, so looking at how the person responds and the types of, you know, whether their thinking is linear and coherent, whether they are having problems keeping on track, problems concentrating. I'm really trying to pay attention to both of those things because those both, both the content, what they're telling me, and and how they're telling me, the process by which they're presenting information, both of those really go into my conceptual. Of the abilities that the defendant has and whether they're able to work with their attorney. The whole point of the forensic interview is basically to provide a a little bit of a mini environment where I am going to ask some of the same questions that his or her attorney would ask. We're going to have some of the same conversations that that person would have with his or her attorney. And then I'm going to extrapolate to that person actually working with his or her attorney. So, in essence, I'm basically Seeing whether that person can answer questions and engage with me in a way that they should with their attorney. And then I will extrapolate that to how they will work with their attorney.
1: And do you ever have the attorney sit in so you can observe how they're interacting with each other?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate. So, you know, we talk about, you know, extrapolating and kind of assuming that if you can answer these questions and engage in this discussion with me, you'll be able to do it with your attorney. But really what we're talking about here is that person working with his or her attorney. So the best thing is for me to actually witness their interactions and observe that person and the attorney working together. So usually the way that I'll set it up is I will have the attorney meet me. They will introduce me to the defendant, We'll talk a little bit about the purpose of the evaluation and ahead of time, I will have asked the attorney to engage in some conversations with that individual so that I can observe. So about the evidence or about which plea to enter or about maybe a plea bargain that's on the table, something that's relevant, something that they will have to talk about or have already been having discussions about so that I can actually witness and observe how those interactions are going. Are they understanding each other? Does the defendant seem to track and follow what the attorney is telling him or her? And so really, that is the ultimate. A lot of times that's not feasible. If it's a court-ordered evaluation and a court-appointed public defender, it may not be possible to observe and have the defendant meet with defense counsel in front of the evaluator. That's the ultimate. When that doesn't happen, the next best thing is for the evaluator to extrapolate from his or her experiences with the defendant. But whenever possible to have the defense counsel and the defendant together and working through a a conversation, that's the best way to do it. We're going to take
1: a quick break and come back and dive more into this fascinating subject of competency to stand trial or proceed. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you're listening to my conversation with Dr. Patricia Zapp on threat of evidence.
0: Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34 year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue. Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow banning, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God given right to free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications America Out Loud Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our guest today is Dr. Patricia Zapp, and we're talking about competency to stand trial or proceed in the criminal arena. We've been talking quite a bit about the evaluation process, and we were specifically talking about the interview before our break, and we had talked a lot about the importance of the relationship between the defendant and his or her attorney, and how that can really be a very important thing to assess in a competency evaluation. I would wonder that, I would imagine there'd be lots of different reasons why a defendant might not cooperate With his or her attorney? Everything from personality clash, not liking that person, to paranoia and all kinds of things. How do you sort that out in a competency evaluation?
2: Yeah, good question. Actually, I think the important thing to remember and what we kind of train mental health professionals who are doing forensic evaluations is that competency really is this interplay between the person and the context. And so, You know, if we're going to change something about competency or incompetency, we can either try to change something about the person, which is what we do most often when we send somebody who's been found incompetent to treatment. We're trying to do something to change his or her mental state, and usually that involves giving psychotropic medication but we could also try to change the dynamic or the context. And so it might be the case that this particular defendant just doesn't work well with who they've been assigned to as a defense attorney. It's hard to know that, though, until we start to look at how this person interacts with others. And so, you know, it might be, it's very rarely this cut and dry, but it might be the case that, you know, a defendant doesn't work well with his or her attorney because the defendant holds some particular attitudes about females and the attorney happens to be a female or male, whatever, take your pick. So maybe the simple thing is just to assign a new attorney and maybe that will allow the defendant to work better with the particular attorney in presenting a defense. What we need to do is start to assess and look at how the defendant works with various other individuals with similar and with different characteristics so that we can start to tease apart what it is about this particular defendant that is not allowing him to work with this particular defense attorney. Oftentimes when we see this, what happens is that there are some delusional beliefs or some beliefs that are not based in reality that are rigid and difficult to to change. And so a lot of times that will come into play and that will be the threshold factor for a person being found incompetent. But there's, you know, we can change the context, the situation, we can change something about the individual and try and tease it apart. We're really looking for multiple sources of confirming evidence. So I'm going to look at a bunch of different contexts and see what the similarities are and see what the differences are. And that might help me to come up with some descriptive remediations, some ideas that would help this defendant function better in the role of defendant with a defense attorney in order to present his defense.
1: Now, what about defendants who are just anti-government or who tend to believe that the government is bad or out to get them in general? It doesn't appear to be a part of a delusional belief that's kind of contained in this person, but this person is a member of a group. How do you sort that out?
2: So, I mean, there's varying levels of this, right? So we're trying to look at how extreme this person's behavior is. And, and we know just the definition of abnormal means a deviation from the norm. And so really, we're looking for these extremes of behavior. Yes, there are many people who are cynical about the government or cynical about the criminal justice system. And so we need to think about that and you know, not penalize that necessarily when we're kind of moving through a competency evaluation. We need to take that as, you know, real and something that is, many people are cynical. And so that's fine. It's when that cynicism or that distrust reaches a level that would be considered extreme. That's what we're kind of worried about or trying to tease apart. And you know, there's some cases, Freeman on the range is what they're called in Canada, but where individuals are very anti-government and it's a specific group of individuals who are anti-government and it's a very orchestrated and understood point of view amongst this particular group. So in that type of situation, the challenge for the evaluator becomes Is this something that's delusional and not based in reality? Or is this something that is extreme, but shared by a group of people, so not specific to this individual and not necessarily tied to mental illness? We have to remember that mental illness or mental disease or defect, different statutes use different terms. But basically, unless the person has a mental disease or a mental disorder or a brain impairment, they are not going to be found incompetent, even if they have extreme views about the government or cynical views. It really needs to be that there's an impairment in terms of ability to assist counsel or ability to understand. And that impairment has to be because of a mental disease or defect. So we're always trying to make that link between what that impairment is and then what the reason for that impairment is. And if the reason is something other than mental illness or cognitive deficit, then they're not going to be considered incompetent.
1: So one of the things I think is really important for us to kind of tease out is this idea of factual versus rational understanding. Because I think it can be easy to kind of go, well, factual understanding. I mean, if a person doesn't understand the role of a judge, then you just tell them or the role of the attorney, then you just tell them and you just educate this person about the various roles and how the proceedings are going to go. And then the person's restored to competency. But I know it's not that simple. So help us understand this difference between the two.
2: So factual understanding is exactly that. Do they understand the factual information about the proceedings, about, you know, what the judge does, what the defense attorney does, what the prosecutor does? You know, it's very much correct or incorrect responses and you're exactly right in that if somebody doesn't know the information or gets a particular piece of factual information wrong then the evaluator in the evaluation in the interview will tell that person the correct answer or give them the information that they don't have and then later on ask the question again maybe in a different way but trying to understand and ascertain whether that individual remembered the answer that the evaluator gave him was able to you know, pull that back in response to the question again. We wanna see whether that person has the capacity to understand and to learn that information. So a lot of the evaluation is kind of moving through and giving information if the person doesn't have it and then testing to see whether they were able to understand and retain. Factual understanding is pretty straightforward. Rational understanding is where things get a little bit muddier because rational understanding is the ability to take factually understood information and apply it to the defendant's own particular case. Another word for rational understanding is appreciation. So, does the defendant have an appreciation of his role or his or her role in the proceedings? Do they have an appreciation of how the proceedings will impact the defendant if they're found guilty? If they're found not guilty, do they understand and appreciate what that means for them as a person? And so, what we find is that there are very few people who are found incompetent because they lack the factual understanding. It's pretty easy to teach someone information about the legal system. You know, the factual understanding is not where we see people being found incompetent. We see them being found incompetent because they cannot appreciate their role in the proceedings. They aren't able to understand that they have a mental illness and that it is impacting them in this particular way. They don't have the insight into their inability to concentrate or their inability to think linearly or they are making decisions in such a way that they are using information that is not based in reality in making those decisions. They believe it's part of their reality, but it's not actually based in reality. And so this is where things get complex for an evaluator, where you're trying to tease apart, you know, what is going on with this particular person and and what's the reason for it. And we, you know, it always needs to be tied back to mental disorder But really, diagnosis is very limited in terms of how helpful it is here. We're really talking at the symptom level. What symptoms of mental disorder or what symptoms of cognitive deficit are responsible for this person's inability to concentrate or inability to rationally manipulate information? That's really where the evaluator is trying to to determine what the deficits are and then what the reason is for those deficits. And those reasons are often the symptoms of mental illness, not necessarily the diagnosis per se.
1: Switching gears a little bit, I'm always really interested in finding out how professionals got involved in the area of work that they do. And I'm interested in finding out from you how you got interested in this aspect of forensic work.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I've been asked it lots. I try to kind of come up with my story of what it was. And honestly, the best that I can come up with was I was an undergraduate. I'm from Canada. I was at University of Alberta in Edmonton. When I was an undergraduate, my brother, who played hockey, because, you know, everyone in Canada does, he was actually hit from behind and he became a quadriplegic. And even though he was paralyzed, he still... Did more than 100 skydives with a tandem partner. So I was really interested in this idea of sensation-seeking and started looking at adrenaline rush, sensation-seeking, and that literature basically led me to the literature on criminality. I guess there's an association between sensation-seeking and criminal behavior. And so then I started reading about this whole area of criminal psychology, forensic psychology. It was so intriguing to me and You know, one thing led to another and I applied to graduate programs, really looking for an emphasis in forensic psychology. There are very few of them, but I was lucky enough to be accepted to Simon Fraser University, which has probably the top program in North America. And my mentor, Ron Resch, was involved in fitness to stand trial, which is what it's called in Canada. And it just went from there. We developed instruments together on assessing fitness. I became interested in this area. And then everything I did since then was in the forensic realm, always working with forensic clients. So yeah, it was just it just kind of naturally progressed and it kind of developed out of this idea of sensation seeking and criminal behavior and crime and personality and you know, what is the criminal mind and and really just kind of went from there.
1: What an interesting story because so many people that I talk to who do work in the criminal or forensic arena have some history, but it often involves having a friend or a family member who was involved as a victim of a crime or even a perpetrator of crime. And yours was very kind of roundabout in terms of how you got there.
2: Yeah, mine was quite tangential, really just kind of looking at the literature and, you know, a personal interest because of the sensation seeking and this sort of, you know, adrenaline rush behavior, but then really kind of leading into this path of criminal psychology, forensic psychology, and, you know, the rest is history.
1: Another somewhat maybe tough question, which is what is the most challenging case you can remember?
2: Uh, Well, I've had many challenging cases. I think probably some of the most challenging cases I've had really have to do with individuals who are both mentally ill and have intellectual disabilities. So it's difficult to tease apart, you know, how a person can be restored to competence when you're not even sure that person was competent in the first place. And so, you know, when you have mental a mental illness, there are certain symptoms that impair one's ability to be involved in the criminal justice system if the mental illness is severe enough. When you've got an intellectual disability on top of that, it just complicates things even more. And so I think a lot of the time it's difficult to tease apart what is a result of you know, having limited intellectual ability and what is a result of mental illness and where we might be able to improve the performance of the individual and where that's not gonna be possible. So a lot of cases, there's this sort of dual component of mental illness and intellectual disability, and you're really trying to tease apart, how much can we help this person? How much can this person be restored to competency? How good are they going to get in terms of their cognitive abilities? Where can assistance be given? And and those are the, I think, the more complex cases, really trying to tease things apart. And, And it's complicated a lot of time because individuals who are intellectually disabled They don't tend to come to the attention of the criminal justice system. They tend to be quite compliant individuals. They don't tend to be troublemakers. They're, you know, they're quiet. They kind of agree and they acquiesce. And so, you know, there's no big red flag that's pointing these people out. So those are the difficult cases where you're really trying to tease apart what's going on here, what's happening with this individual. And many times they're not even identified as such in the first place.
1: I would really agree with that. I've seen a couple of really heartbreaking cases in prison of individuals who, as I got to know them in treatment, it just became evident to me that this person didn't have the short-term memory capability. Both of the individuals I'm thinking about had a history of um, severe automobile accidents. And so they had not been identified as intellectually disabled during in school or throughout their life, but as a young adults, they had had these really horrendous car accidents and they seemed extremely intellectually impaired. And yet they had not come to the attention of anybody because they were compliant. Yeah. But in terms of treatment, it was just amazing to see that the deficits that they had and all the custody officers were kind of aware of this and tried to kind of work around these deficits, but it was really a challenge.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. People really adapt to it, you know, and and oftentimes individuals with intellectual ability disabilities are able to adapt a little bit to their environment, especially when it's a structured environment and they're in the hospital and they go through treatment and the problem is that they are able to learn responses to specific questions. And so as an evaluator evaluating whether they are, you know, now restored to competence, it becomes a problem when you're trying to look at are they just giving a response that's a parroted response that they've learned or do they actually understand and a lot of times if you're not going deeper with your inquiries and you're just taking at face value their responses it seems very much like they are restored to competence when they're not and so that's a concern because we really don't want people advancing through their proceedings if they are unable to understand those proceedings and so we worry about that I would say for sure
1: We had touched earlier on this idea of malingering or faking from a layperson's perspective, someone who's trying to fake incompetency. From your experience, how common is it for someone to try to fake incompetency?
2: Well, That's a good question. I don't know that we have any real great data on it. There's some data that suggests a quarter of all defendants evaluated for competency, a third. We don't really know. It's difficult to ascertain that, but we do know that any individual who's involved in the criminal justice system, that is one of the sort of flags that tell us that we should be evaluating presentation style and whether this person might be malingering. So it's difficult to look at. There's gold standard for competency, but it is something that needs to be considered in every evaluation. And the best estimates are about a quarter of those who are evaluated may be presenting other than honestly.
1: So we're going to take a break again. And we've been talking a lot about evaluating competency. What do you look for? What are the common features? When we come back, I want to shift gears a little bit and start talking about when somebody has found to be incompetent, what happens after that, what can happen after that, how that's going to work through the rest of the process from a criminal perspective. You are listening to Dr. Joni Johnston and our guest, Dr. Patricia Zapp. We'll be right back with Threat of Evidence.
0: This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the Warren police at Amazon.com.
1: Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your host for today. And I am talking with our guest, Dr. Patricia Zapp, who is an expert in the area of competency to proceed and or stand trial. I want to just touch on this idea of juveniles and competency and the differences that you see or the additional challenges in evaluating a juvenile for competency to stand trial.
2: Yeah, so competency is something that applies in the criminal justice system, so in the court system, but also in the juvenile justice system. And most states at this point have statutes and procedures with respect to juvenile competency. And for the most part, Those same issues that apply to competency in adults also apply to juveniles. Juveniles also, though, have this added complexity whereby their level of maturity or their level of sophistication can also impact their competency. So it's possible that someone could be found incompetent as a juvenile not because they have a particular mental disease or defect or cognitive disorder, but because they're just not mature enough to rationally understand and make decisions. So this becomes, a, you know, obviously a complex issue because how do you restore someone when the basis for their incompetence is immaturity? And do we just give them time? So these are all issues that are dealt with in the juvenile justice system. But for the most part, every state has statutes that are Close in nature to the competency statutes for adults, but that apply to juveniles. We very much believe in this country that juveniles also should be given those same due process rights as adults.
1: Well, certainly if you have a juvenile who's going to be tried as an adult...
2: Yes, absolutely. When a juvenile is tried as an adult and they're waived and they go through the criminal court proceedings, then the same statutes that apply to adults apply to that individual regardless of age. And there are certain guidelines for whether someone is waived to the adult court or not. And so anyone that goes through adult court, regardless of their chronological age, would still be required to be competent to move forward.
1: How many... I guess what percentage would you say of the individuals that you evaluate do you find incompetent to stand trial?
2: In general, across the nation, when we look at kind of a conglomerate of data, a meta analysis of all of the research that's been done, and it varies by jurisdiction, but when we look across the board and take sort of the grand average, what we see is that about 27.5%. So just over a quarter of all defendants who are evaluated for competency are found incompetent. In my own practice, that's a good question. I I do keep stats on that. I actually have a little bit of a higher rate of incompetence, but I'm also, there's some selectivity in the cases that I get. I tend to be retained on high profile death penalty cases where there's issues of both mental illness and intellectual disability. So I think it makes sense that my rates of incompetence would be a little bit higher than the national average, but the national average is about a quarter of all defendants who are evaluated. Should the
1: seriousness of the charge affect the level of competency that person needs to proceed
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, that is the way that it works in practice. That's the way we train forensic evaluators that you cannot assess competency independent of the context of the case. The charges are absolutely something that need to be considered. And in general, the more serious the charge, the more serious the potential outcome for the individual, the higher the level of competence that's required. And oftentimes we can see that just in terms of the abilities that are. Are going to be required of the individual. So it's often the case that it's a simple, straightforward matter, and really not much is required of the defendant. In those really high-profile, complex, serious charge cases, multiple charges, it becomes a higher threshold for competence for the individual. And oftentimes because that person is going to be required to testify, is going to be required to pay attention to multiple witnesses and track what multiple witnesses are saying and point out inconsistencies across days of testimony. So the cognitive demand is higher and the abilities that are required are greater. And so oftentimes that results in a higher threshold for being found competent.
1: And how does a
2: death penalty possibility impact the competency process? So, you know, death penalty, the, the potential outcome in that type of case is pretty much as severe as you can get. And, you know, there's this trade-off that occurs even in medical decision-making when we're talking about, you know, the competence of an individual to make medical decisions. If it's a, you know, a low-risk procedure, we really don't have a very high threshold for someone agreeing to that procedure. If it's a more risky procedure, we want that person to have a higher level of understanding, a higher level of cognitive ability. So, the same type of analogy can be made to death penalty cases. You know, the higher the stakes, the higher the threshold. We really want to make sure that this person has the abilities necessary to to truly understand the proceedings and to be able to participate in those proceedings. So it really does increase the threshold.
1: So those of us involved in expert witness work certainly know the my personal experience, the whole issue of the dueling experts that kind of come into court and certainly in criminal responsibility or insanity pleas, that seems to be just a standard kind of procedure. How often do you encounter that in these competency evaluations?
2: Yeah, so the interesting thing about competency evaluations is that it is not often the case that there's a hearing on the issue. Usually what happens is most statutes will provide for having a couple of of evaluations. So usually there are two independent evaluators, both court appointed who conduct an evaluation of the defendant. Those are usually independent evaluations. And then typically what happens is if both of those evaluators agree, the court kind of goes with that and moves forward in that direction, whatever, they agree on competent or agree on incompetent. In those handful of cases or small proportion of cases where there are differences between the court-appointed expert or between the two evaluating experts, then oftentimes there will be a hearing on the issue. And, you know, for the most part, there aren't a lot of hearings for competency cases. So, let's assume for a moment that
1: you and I have evaluated a defendant. We've both agreed this person is incompetent. He goes to a state hospital or she goes to a state hospital until competency is restored. What happens next?
2: So what happens is they go to a hospital. Typically, we have some states will use outpatient competency restoration services, some States will have jail-based competency restoration services, but many still use state hospitals, forensic hospitals. The common denominator amongst all competency restoration treatment is psychotropic medication. For the most part, it's psychotropic medication that gets the person's symptoms of mental disorder under control. And when those symptoms of mental disorder become under control oftentimes we will see the issues in terms of their deficits resolving with respect to their understanding of their ability to work with their attorney. So a lot of times it really does hinge on the ability of that person to both take medication and then to respond to medication. And we're at a point where we've got some pretty good treatment response for medication. Generally what will happen is the person will be medicated. They may undergo some educational programming to kind of train them a little bit in terms of the factual understanding that they need to have about the criminal justice system and maybe even working on some discussions of decisional abilities and decision making about their case and kind of move them through this educational program with respect to what it means to be competent, what happens in the criminal justice system. And most states have statutes that indicate, you know, you can have six months of restoration and then you could maybe have an extension on that for six months if it looks like the person's making strides toward being restored. It's all, you know, regulated by the state statutes, but oftentimes there are provisions for reevaluation of this person and reporting to the court the progress of this person. Once the person's been considered to be restored, they're at a point where they could proceed with their case most often what will happen is they will go back to court and proceed with their case.
1: So what about this case? At the very beginning of the show today, I talked about Robert Deer, who's the man who killed these three individuals at the Southern California Planned Parenthood, who's been found incompetent now for almost four years. Number one, what should we do and what do we do if somebody says, I'm not mentally ill, I've never been mentally ill, I don't need medication and I'm not taking it.
2: Yeah. So this happens. This happens where people, especially those individuals who are mentally ill and don't have insight into their mental illness. So they're mentally ill, but they don't believe that they are. um, And they refuse to take medication. And so it's interesting because in Canada, this doesn't really happen. It's kind of part of the procedure where they're medicated and they just move forward. In the United States, an individual has the right to refuse medication. So you're found incompetent. You go for restoration. We know that psychologically, Psychotropic medication has a good opportunity, good possibility of restoring or at least getting mental health symptoms under control and allowing the person to be restored to competency. But somebody decides not to take medication, they refuse medication. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. When it happens, there are legal procedures that can be undertaken to forcibly medicate that individual. So there's something called a cell proceeding where there have to be certain criteria that are met. There has to be an important governmental interest at stake in bringing this person to trial. There has to be a good chance that medication will be beneficial for this person and not cause major you know, other problems or side effects. It has to be a least restrictive alternative for this individual. But it can be the case that then the court would make a decision that would override the individual rights of that individual to refuse medication and would allow for the forcible medication of that individual. And so oftentimes, this is what happens. That person would be medicated against his or her will, and then we move through the proceedings in that way. But it's very well documented, and it's a very legal process, and there, you know, a, a legal decision maker makes the decision to allow that person to be forcibly medicated.
1: Yeah, and I actually do believe in that case that in 2017, he, they did institute that procedure and I think he is involuntary taking medication. It does appear as if to date the medication has not been particularly effective, which brings me to my next question, that even though we do have good treatment and the vast majority of people who take antipsychotic medications do get better, there is a small subset of people who don't respond to this medication. And what do we do in that situation?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. There is a small subset of people who do not respond. And we know that for certain diagnoses, that becomes a higher proportion. So, you know, individuals with delusional disorder and individuals who've had delusional disorder for a lengthy period of time, they are one of the least likely groups to respond to medication. So it becomes complex. We're at a point where, you know, we do have a particular disorder, delusional disorder, that if somebody has very fixed long-term delusions, there is not a very good chance that taking medication is going to improve their thinking to the point where they are no longer delusional. So then it becomes this issue of what do we do? Do we keep this person incarcerated or kept in a forensic facility as incompetent to stand trial? Well, there's some case law that indicates that we can't keep people indefinitely. We can't hold people indefinitely as incompetent to stand trial. Most states have provisions that allow for Either the dismissal of those charges, or more commonly moving that person out of the criminal justice system and into the civil system. so having that person civilly committed, uh, which are you know slightly different criteria for that, but a lot of times individuals who are incompetent and who are not responding to medication, you know if it was a serious crime, if there are serious allegations, if it can be shown that they're a danger to themselves or to others oftentimes they will be moved into the civil system and no longer involved in the criminal justice system. The charges might stay there. If they ever became competent, technically those charges could be brought back against them. But this is where we are with this state. There are going to be a small proportion of individuals who are not going to respond to treatment or who are going to refuse treatment and for whom the government is going to say, you know, the risks are far too here. They don't outweigh the benefits. We can't let you forcibly medicate. So this person is just going to remain sort of in this incompetent state and then then the challenge becomes you know what do we do do we keep this person incarcerated or in a forensic facility in a state hospital do we let them go we got to balance the interests of public safety with the interests of the individual and so you know those are complex issues and usually there's A team of people who decide—they
1: are very complex. Uh, There was a case out of Kentucky. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That was in the news recently, where there's apparently a loophole in the law where individuals who are found incompetent tend to be admitted to the hospital, but as soon as they're not. danger to themselves or they're released. And this person has just committed multiple violent offenses and keeps being found incompetent and sent to the hospital and then released. And then this whole thing kind of repeats itself. And they're kind of struggling to find a way to close this loop.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that this is not very common. This is rare, But these are challenging and complex issues, and this is what we're dealing with. And so we have almost a systemic crisis in this country with, you know, limited forensic beds, long wait lists. There are many states that are being sued for their lengthy wait lists and people who are, you know, waiting for evaluations of competency or waiting to get in a bed to be restored. So, you know, we have challenges in terms of trying to manage the resources that we have and, you know, effectively manage the safety of the community. So, you know, we could go on and on about public funding for mental health care and sort of how that might help to uh, lessen the burden on the systems, but we're not quite there at this point in this country.
1: Yeah, that would take probably a year for us to kind of (laughs) of tease apart some of those kind of issues. No doubt. I wanted to touch briefly on the issue of competency to represent yourself. Yeah. Because we focused on the issues of, you know, to stand trial or proceed. But what about individuals who are saying, I want to be my own attorney, and the defense attorney who's been appointed is kind of saying, "Um, you know, I don't think this person is capable of doing this.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple really interesting cases that have uh, been decided by the Supreme Court in this country. One was in 1993, Godinez versus Moran. The issue there was whether the same standard for competency would apply, whether it was to plead guilty, to stand trial, or to waive assistance of counsel. And in that case, the court decided that it's the same standard for all of those different types of competency, and that same standard would be the constitutional minimum of Dusky. So exactly what we've been talking about. But, you know, there were a few cases that occurred after that where individuals who are clearly mentally ill were then representing themselves and really kind of making a mockery out of the court system. And the Supreme Court got a chance to kind of redo that decision a little bit. Uh, I think it was 2009, Indiana versus Edwards. And in that case, the issue was whether somebody who was met the standard for competency and was competent, but was mentally ill, could that person be forced or be made to have assistance of counsel or were they given carte blanche to waive the assistance of counsel and proceed on their own and what the supreme court ultimately decided in that case is that yes the court can actually make someone proceed with the assistance of counsel so even though you're competent to stand trial if it is the case that the court thinks that you would have difficulty representing yourself without assistance of counsel, you can be made to have counsel appointed and have to have counsel with you. You can't just waive your right to counsel and proceed on your own if the court has concerns about that. And I think that's a reasonable decision
1: that the court made. I would agree that it does seem reasonable, although I'm not sure if I was the defense attorney uh, assigned. (laughs) I would would agree with that. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom and expertise with us on this really complicated topic, which I think does boil down to us all working together to figure out the best way to resolve all the competing interests of all the parties involved, which is very complicated.
2: Indeed. Complex, but interesting. And thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed speaking with you about it. You're welcome. And again, this was Dr. Patricia Zaff talking with me,
1: Dr. Joni Johnston on Threat of We'll see you next time.